Thank you, David, for the, the prayers. Thank you all for being here on a, on a snowy Lord's Day morning. Uh, have we mentioned it's Valentine's Day? Today is Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, my wife, I, I waved goodbye to her as I sped out the door this morning without saying Happy Valentine's Day. So, darling, I know you are at home watching on television. Happy Valentine's Day to you and to all of you. I hope you did a better job uh, wishing your Valentine a happy Valentine's Day than I did. Um, you know, Valentine's Day is one of those little reminders of how deeply Christian our culture is. Uh, Madison Avenue long ago co-opted St. Valentine and turned him into a representation of uh, romantic love, usually involving a cherub with a little arrow and a little bow. And uh, that's what a lot of people think of when they think of Valentine and Valentine's Day. But actually, St. Valentine was a real person. There are actually several St. Valentines, but the one that's commemorated on February 14th is St. Valentine of Rome. And the reason he became a saint, historically, and sort of based on very, very, very old legends and history and pseudo-history, but a Valentine was apparently a Christian uh, in the 3rd century, and uh, he was involved in the time of the Emperor Claudius. He was thought to have been a priest in the church, one who pastored other people, cared for them, ministered to them. And there was an emperor at the time named Claudius who was concerned about enlisting recruits for the Roman army. And uh, he was very concerned that a lot of the Roman Christians and, and others were so attached to their fiancés or their wives that the Roman men were no longer as eager to sign up for the military. And so, according to legend, uh, Valentine preached against that and said that uh, that the, the emperor was wrong and, and stood up for the value of family and, and the love between a husband and a wife, man and a woman, and uh, made this a very public pronouncement got on the wrong side of the emperor, which was always a dangerous thing to do, and wound up being martyred for it. The emperor didn't like being opposed in public, didn't agree with Valentine, and had Valentine, according to tradition, beheaded for his faith in Christ. So it had something to do with romantic love, but the reason we remember Valentine, the reason he was recorded in church history is because he stood for the Bible's teaching on the relationship between husband and wife, all according to church tradition. Well, I like to remember that on St. Valentine's Day. Uh, it is a day that we celebrate not only the love between husband and wife, girlfriend and boyfriend, uh, but also the love between Christ and his church. Uh, which calls us to commit to one another and calls us to recognize what the Bible says about family, what the Bible says about the relationship between men and women. And it's a beautiful thing to contemplate, a beautiful thing to think of, a beautiful thing to teach your children. They'll be bombarded with the rest. It'll be up to you and to your church to make sure they hear the, the full story. Uh, at least as church tradition teaches it. So it's a good thing to remember these things. And there are a number of them in our calendar. Everybody from St. Nicholas to St. Valentine and lots of people in between are actually in the calendar, not because of the things the world remembers, but because of the things the church remembers about them. So uh, you might you might think about that this Valentine's Day as you 
uh, pass uh, candy and uh, flowers and do fun things to celebrate Valentine's Day, remember that Valentine loved the Lord Jesus, and we're called to love the Lord Jesus as well. All right, if you would please stand. We're going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious God, thank you for this uh, short passage from your servant Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, a church he loved very much. Gracious God, I pray you'd send the Holy Spirit powerfully upon us, the same Spirit that moved Paul to write these words. May that same Spirit, Father, stir our hearts to hear these words, to take them to heart, to reflect on them, to abide by them, and, Father, to rejoice in them. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's providential that uh, on Valentine's Day we're, we're looking at just three verses from the last chapter in Paul's letter to this church in Philippi. Uh, it's a church that he loved. He says he longed for them. He called them his joy and crown. What a wonderful way to describe the church. Uh, the, his joy and crown, one that he deeply, deeply loved. That's the church Paul is writing to here in chapter 4, uh, as he has been right through the book of Philippians. It's a book that is characterized by love. Uh, not romantic love, but the kind of love that Valentine had for the church and for the Lord Jesus, and the kind of love that you and I are called to have for the church and for the Lord Jesus. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about these three verses. Obviously, it's a very short passage. Uh, but I've been thinking a lot about these three verses as I've been reflecting on uh, the Presbyterian Church in America and my little tiny role in it and MetroCrest's role in it. Um, and I, I'd like just for a few minutes this morning to reflect with you on this short passage and And the glimpse it gives us into the way the Apostle Paul viewed women. Uh, That is not an insignificant subject. Uh, In the short time I've been a Presbyterian in the PCA, uh, our denomination has wrestled with this important subject, the role of women. In fact, I I think it may have been the first out-of-town or out-of-Texas Presbytery, sorry, national General Assembly that I attended, the first National General Assembly outside of Texas that I attended was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And at that General Assembly, we discussed at great length the role of women in the church. As a matter of fact, I, I printed out, and I'd love to share with you all, any, with any of you who haven't read it, this is the report of the Ad Interim Committee on Women Serving in the Ministry of the Church to the 45th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. This was presented and discussed in 1990, uh, sorry, uh, 2000, 
and 17. Um, it was discussed at great length. It was a fascinating discussion, uh, one that I think revealed a lot about the PCA and about the way we view important questions. How do we deal with important questions? Since this report, we've had reports on sexuality, we've had reports on uh, race and the interaction between the races. Lots of controversial issues have been dealt with uh, by our denomination. And I want to get you to reflect with me on this report. Uh, I posted it online for those of you who want to read it. If you're curious, it's about 60 pages long. It's honestly worth the read. I don't say that uh, about every document produced by a denominational meeting, uh, but this is worth the read. It was it was put together by a group of people who knew and loved the Lord and knew and loved the church and wanted the church to reflect what the Lord and the church has always believed. And so the, the report is well worth uh, scanning or reading, maybe even studying, I recommend it to you, and I brought a printed copy if you'd like to take it home with you today. You're more than welcome to. Um, let me just tell you the very first paragraph answers some of the questions that might come rushing to your mind. Let me just read the first paragraph. The Presbyterian Church in America is joyfully and confessionally committed to the Bible's teaching on the complementarity of men and women. As a denomination, we believe that this teaching is true, good, and beautiful. Not, not exactly a Valentine's Day greeting, but true, good, and beautiful. We affirm the full dignity of men and women as created in the image of God. We also humbly and happily embrace Scripture's clear teaching that the eldership is to be composed of qualified men who are entrusted by Christ with the ministry of the authoritative teaching and ruling of the church for the building up of the whole body. Uh, that opening paragraph sort of sets the stage for a full and I think fairly balanced review of what the Bible says on this controversial and important topic. What is meant to be the role between men and women and how do each rep uh, use and uh, success successfully demonstrate uh, their giftedness to the church and in the church and the life of the church. How do they do that? This report is meant to answer that question. And uh, it goes through the Old and the New Testament. It pulls out example after example. For instance, I read about Huldah, the prophetess Huldah. Uh, not exactly a name that comes rushing to my mind when I think about Old Testament women who serve. But the prophetess Huldah had a very interesting role to play in the life of King Josiah. Uh, she's mentioned, she's sort of singled out even over against Jeremiah, who was a prophet at the exact same time as Huldah, in the same situation as Huldah. Yet it was Huldah who influenced the king and influenced Jerusalem in this profound way when they restored the book of Deuteronomy in the life of Israel at the temple. Very, very significant point in the history of, uh, of Israel. Very significant point in the life of God's covenant people. Holda stands out, and there's actually several couple of paragraphs about Holda. And, and lots of other women, Deborah and others in the Old Testament, uh, Miriam and others who, who serve the Lord and are singled out, identified in the Old Testament as women who serve the Lord in important ways, uh, ways that included the proclamation of uh, God's truth. 
and so that's that's described in some detail. Then there's a whole section on the New Testament. What does the New Testament teach? What does Jesus teach himself? And what does he demonstrate himself in his own ministry and the view he had about women? And then probably more than any other person, Paul is discussed at great length. What did Paul believe about the ministry of women? And there's there's long sections about what Paul had to say in his letters, uh, words that he shared with the infant church that really set the stage for a lot of what we believe to this day about the role of men, the role of women in the life of God's covenant community. So I commend this study to you. It's extremely helpful, worth reading, and I promise you, you will have a better understanding of the issue and a clearer grasp of why this issue is so important and why our answer to this issue is so important. Um, There's lots in it that affirms very strongly the unique role that men have to play in God's uh, plan for the church, the role that uh, elders and uh, deacons are called to play, and uh, they, they, they embrace fully the traditional viewpoint on those things, recognizing that there's some differences in some of the specifics. How do you live that out in the life of a church? But always coming down very clearly on the, on the understanding that according to the uh, institution of Christ, uh, the ordained ministry is reserved for godly qualified men. But there's an interesting section at the very end. I just want to read this briefly. The very end, section three which is a recommendation from the study committee to the whole church. This recommendation is that Sessions, Presbyteries, and the General Assembly strive to develop, recognize, and utilize the gifts, skills, knowledge, and wisdom of godly women in the local, regional, and national church. That the Sessions, Presbyteries, and General Assembly strive to develop, recognize, and utilize the gifts, skills, knowledge, and wisdom of godly women. I want to leave that recommendation ringing in your ears. We looked at at what Paul has to say here in Philippians 4 in these three short verses. Uh, He's not writing here a doctrine about the role of women in church life. He's not writing instructions that have specific application to us in the sense of uh, sort of orders, commandments to us. What he's actually doing is describing his own practice, what the Apostle Paul actually did in his ministry. And of course, as apostolic Christians, we want to pay close attention. And we will take our practice from Paul's practice and the practice of the rest of the Scripture. I want to just briefly acknowledge Paul's bad um, rap. Paul has a reputation among some, and he's criticized by some as being a misogynist or something, that he somehow hates women. And uh, that comes from uh, people misreading and reading in a wooden fashion some of the comments Paul has to say about the structure of the church and about the role of women in the church. And those who start out not liking Paul will often not like what Paul says about women. I remember a few years ago, I was counseling a couple about getting married, and we 
uh, were talking about Bible readings, and I mentioned Ephesians. There's a passage in Ephesians where Paul talks about Christian marriage and about the role between husbands and wives. And the young woman who I was talking to about this in, in the premarriage counseling uh, said, I will not have that read at my wedding. And she was quite insistent. And uh, her fiancé decided he'd go along with her. And so they declined to have Paul's teaching on marriage read at their Christian marriage. That's not a good idea. Um, It's not a good idea because it's uh, a rejection of what the Scriptures teach us. It's a rejection of what the apostles taught us. It's a rejection of what Jesus himself demonstrates. Um, But it's also unwise. It's unwise. It's actually setting a marriage up for failure. It's setting a marriage up for sub-Christian life. Well, there are lots of people like that young woman years ago who don't like what Paul has to say about women. He doesn't like what Paul has to say about the role of women and the relationship between husbands and wives. Uh, They reject that. And so as a result, Paul, in the estimation of some, is not quite someone we should listen to. I actually remember a, a bishop in a denomination I used to be a part of said, in no uncertain terms, Paul was wrong. He was simply writing in the context that he lived in, and he was wrong. And I remember when I heard these words, my ears just ringing. No, no, we might misunderstand something Paul is saying, but Paul is not wrong. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was at work in Paul. The Holy Spirit brings the gospel to us through the Apostle Paul. And to say Paul was wrong, and to throw out what the Apostle teaches, is to throw out what the Holy Spirit teaches. It's to throw out what Jesus has taught us. It's to throw out the authoritative word which reigns over us. That is not only terribly, terribly wrong, it's terribly, terribly foolish. Now, Paul has this bad rap, this bad bad reputation, in part because of the fact that in verse 1, if you read verse 1, he says, therefore, my brothers. Well, in 21st century America, uh, those words by themselves bring rejection. It means Paul was writing only to men, right? That's the way our culture would read that sentence. Uh, we've been so inundated with it, quote, inclusive language, uh, that we've, we've become culturally insensitive and, and we actually put our culture above other cultures. The culture Paul was writing in, and two, understood the word Adelphoi, that's where we get brothers, the Greek word Adelphoi, was actually an inclusive word. It meant brothers and sisters. It could also mean brothers. But it also meant brothers and sisters, which was true in English. Not that long ago, when I was a boy, when you said my brothers, you meant all the, all the people, men and women who were there in the church were included in that way of describing the group. My brothers was not an exclusive term. It was a term that actually included both genders. Of course, in 2021, there aren't just two genders. Our culture has decided there are infinite genders. I don't know what we're going to do with language to try and communicate going forward. 
How would you describe in a culture that doesn't recognize the reality of two genders, how do you describe all the people who are there? What long list do you have to come up with? What linguistic gymnastics do you have to do to include everybody? Paul was fortunate left to live in a society, a culture where the word Adelphoi included both the Christian men and the Christian women who were there in Philippi receiving his letter. It was all of them who he loved, all of them who he longed for, all of them whom he viewed as his joy and crown. So the bad rap that Paul has gotten in some circles is undeserved, wrong-headed, and dangerous. You can see the sad impact on the life of the church as we become more and more confused about these important truths which are built into the scriptures from Genesis right through Revelation. Well, I'm not going to talk more about that except to say uh, they're not where I'm coming from this morning. It's not where the PCA is coming from, and it's not where Paul was coming from. Paul, as he wrote these words, actually had a very different view towards women than he's sometimes accused of having. And actually, he's quite up front about his feeling. He says it in verse 2. He's entreating these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Those are Greek women's names. He urges them. He entreats them to agree in the Lord. And then notice what he says in verse 3. And this is where I'd like to camp out for just a few minutes this morning. Paul says, I ask you also, true companion. And notice what he asks this true companion to do. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. See, the way Paul viewed women was as co-laborers, those who labored right beside him in the gospel, right along with Clement, right along with the rest of all the fellow workers. Paul saw these women, Euodia and Syntyche, and there are many other examples in his letters, he, he frequently singled out godly women uh, for uh, mention, to identify them, to thank them, to recognize them, to encourage that they be respected. And here Paul singles out these two women who are actually disagreeing with each other. In other words, he's singling them out, not at the high point in their ministry. They're disagreeing about something. He's urging them to agree. So he's singling them out, not at the high point in their ministry, but actually at the very human level. They're in the midst of an argument. And yet it's at this point that Paul recognizes these women as being co-laborers, those who have worked with him side by side with others in the cause of the gospel. Paul had a very, very high view of women. Uh, if, in fact, if you remember from Acts chapter 16, the first two converts to Paul's ministry identified in Philippi in Acts 16 as Paul began the European mission of the church, the first two converts were women. The first one was a businesswoman named Lydia, and the second one was an unnamed slave girl who was delivered from an oppressive demonic spirit. Paul actually began the church in Philippi meeting in the home of Lydia, in a woman's house. 
Paul had a very, very high view of women. And one of the interesting things about Paul is that as he had this high view of women, he places himself in contrast to the Pharisees of which he was a part and of the Jewish customs of which he was uh, a student. Uh, He sets himself separate from the practices of the Jewish people at this time. At this time, as Paul was writing to the church in Philippi, women were at the bottom of the social ladder. They couldn't even, in a Jewish courtroom, they couldn't even testify as a witness. They, they had no believability, no credibility. But Paul saw them as co-laborers, side by side with him. He valued and respected the ministry of women. Of course, that's exactly what we see in Jesus' own ministry. It's interesting that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. It was actually the women who went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, who were the very first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. People who couldn't testify in court were actually the very first to testify to the resurrection of Christ. And that's that's typical of Jesus' ministry. He related to women. He treated women with respect and showed them dignity. You can think of example after example where the Lord went to women and treated them with kindness and compassion. You can think of the woman at the well, a terrible sinner who had committed sin after sin. When she met Jesus at the well in in the Gospel of John, she was meeting a Jew, a, a teacher among the Jews. And rather than rejecting her and looking down on her, he actually was kind to her and dealt with her as a human being, as a person of value. That's the way Jesus treated women in his ministry. We see that again and again as women stand out from his own mother, Mary, to Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, uh, to woman after woman. uh, The uh, examples just flow of different women, uh, Mary Magdalene and, and others who were singled out by Christ. Well, Paul simply is following the way Jesus treated women, and here in this little passage, as a, as a description of how he dealt with women, we are reminded again that he treated them as co-workers. I'd like to think about that with you for a minute here, as I'm starting out my time at Metrocrest. I'm brand new here. I've been here a, a couple of months. I'm just finding my way around. I'm just figuring out how Realm works. I'm just figuring out all kinds of things at Metrocrest. But one of the things I've noticed is how important women are in the life of our church. Um, I can think of example after example after example where godly, gifted women have been willing and eager to help in the gospel ministry that we're seeking to carry forward here at Metrocrest Presbyterian Church. I am so grateful for the godly women who are willing to roll up their sleeves and labor side by side with me and the elders and the deacons 
and every member of our church working together for the gospel. I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart to each godly one. I'm thinking of uh, Gwen Sterenberg, who's sitting here with her whole clan, uh, drove into church this morning with a van full, truck full of kids to be at church. Uh, we didn't go out and beg Gwen to do the Sunday school. She raised her hand and said, I'll do it. It needs to be done. I'll do it. I think of uh, Kathleen Barclay, who very sensibly is not here this morning. <laughs> She's at home. Uh, Kathleen was the person we asked to help us coordinate our mission outreach for the gospel. Are we being somehow anti-PCA by enlisting a woman to coordinate the mission activity of our church? I don't think so. I think we're following the example of Paul, who is following the example of Jesus. We're simply empowering women to do the jobs that God has empowered them to do. We're simply recognizing his work in the church, which includes both men and women. And that's the way Paul looked at it. That's the way he looked at it here in Philippi and elsewhere. He looked at these women as absolutely appropriate co-workers, partners in the gospel. And while there are different roles and different ways of living out that responsibility, there is a oneness in our call to bear witness to Christ, to point to Christ, to empower the ministry of Christ's church, to do everything we can to labor for the gospel. So to all the godly women uh, who've been willing to serve here at Metrocrest and in the PCA and throughout the church, the martyrs who've given their own life, women who've given their own life for the cause of Christ, along with people like Valentine and Paul, who were willing to suffer and die for the cause of the gospel. We, we are so thankful for them, and I'm so thankful for each of the godly women here at Metrocrest. And I want to just draw your attention to the very last thing Paul says. He's describing both the women, the co-workers, who have been laboring side by side with him, along with this person, Clement, and all the other fellow workers. Notice the last thing Paul says, whose names are in the book of life. You see, that's, that's Paul's proper emphasis. That's what really matters. You know, in our day and age, we, we tend to think of things in terms of politics and rights and demands and and uh, we, we demand our rights, and that's the way we're wired to think. And, of course, there is a sense in which it's, it's appropriate for people to demand rights in certain situations. There, it is important that our society rec- recognizes the rights of people. But that's not what motivates Paul primarily. What motivates Paul primarily is our oneness in the book of life, our oneness in Christ. That's why he says in Galatians 3, there is no Greek or Jew, male or female. There's only one in Christ. See, that's that's the proper emphasis. It's not to emphasize the difference and then to demand that those differences be recognized. Paul really looks at it the other way around. 
He looks at, yes, there are significant and important differences in creation, in the order of things. Yes, there are differences, but we're actually one in Christ. So he, he recognizes the difference, but works back towards our oneness. And that brings with it humility, which is a virtue our society hardly seems to understand anymore. Humility is a, it's one of those things we just don't talk about. It's a word of oppression, humility. But for Paul, and he's going to go on to say that this next week, when we are two weeks from now, when we look at what Paul has to say as he wraps up this letter, he continues a theme he has developed right through Philippians. It is humility. It's putting others first. It's actually dying to self. It's me choosing to die to my rights, so to speak. To put other people first. That is so counterintuitive in our culture. But that's what Paul says the church is meant to be. It is the community of people who humbly submit to other people. And in Philippians chapter 2, what is the preeminent example of that? It's Jesus, who died to himself, who put his holy relationship, his oneness, his equality with God, he he put that on hold in a sense, in order to, to be with us and be among us, to serve us. He came to serve us. And that's actually what ministry is meant to be. It's not about lording over people and ordering people around, which is the way we tend to think of it. It's actually serving people as Christ did. That's the proper emphasis. Being in the book of life, being one in Christ, as he describes in great detail in Philippians 3, the righteousness which doesn't come from ourselves, which comes from Jesus, and then a life lived in response to that gospel, a life that involves service and care for other people. Well, Valentine is a legend, but there's a lot to be said for the legend. There's a lot to be said for the idea of dying for other people, being willing to serve other people. My prayer for all of us, men and women, boys and girls at MetroCrest, is that we would grow into that more and more and more. We have a long history of God at work among us. My hope is that it will grow and deepen and mature more and more. That godly men and godly women would work together side by side for the gospel in mission, in Sunday school, in adult education, in every aspect of church life. That we would work together side by side with all our fellow workers whose names are or in the book of life.